Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Welcome to episode 65 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Later in the episode, Chris Hutchins will be joining me. Chris is the host of All The Hacks, one of the fastest growing podcasts out there, let alone personal finance podcasts. And Chris is really a, a credit card points master, among other hacks that he loves. And, and why does Chris love credit card points? Mainly, it's because he's a travel hacker. He loves to travel the world with his family for free. So we're going to segue into some of Chris's thoughts by first chatting a bit about travel, specifically a good lesson or two from my recent trips to Ireland and England and also to Vietnam and Thailand. But before that, I want to give a quick shout out to this week's review of the week. Jane, thank you for writing in Jane. Jane wrote in and said, Jesse's podcast is fantastic. I love the interviews and Jesse also does a great job explaining complex financial topics. I've really enjoyed listening and definitely recommend it to anyone who's looking to improve their finances and stay inspired along their journey. Jane, thank you for the kind words. If you're hearing this, Jane, if you're listening right now, send me an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog and I'll get you hooked up with a nice little best interest gift. Okay, let's travel to Vietnam really quick. The traffic in Hanoi, Hanoi, Vietnam, Kelly and I were there for a few days. It's insane. It is the Wild West. We witnessed it a little bit horrified firsthand. Stop signs, red lights are completely optional. Uh, there's no such thing as right of way that we might be used to here in most Western traffic patterns. Intersections, they look and behave uh, kind of like two crossing murmurations. And that's your vocabulary word of the day. A murmuration is a, a cloud of birds, specifically a cloud of starlings that you might be familiar with, right? It kind of ebbs and flows almost like it's fluid. Now, if you can imagine two of those clouds of birds crossing paths, you'd get a pretty good approximation of what a Hanoi intersection looks like with mopeds everywhere. Sidewalks, in fact, are used as moped parking lots. So pedestrians walk in the streets. And for pedestrians crossing the streets, the, the, the dead serious how-to advice, I mean, the, the advice that you would see in a tourism guide if you were traveling to Vietnam, is uh, first, when you're, when you're crossing the street, you should wait for a small dip in traffic density. You're never going to get rid of all the traffic altogether, but you should wait for the density to lighten up a little bit. And then you have to commit to crossing. Commit. You've got to go. And once you go, do not change speed. Keep going across the street. The traffic will see you, and then they will go around them. You have to trust the, the moped driver's that they are going to go around you. So in other words, to, to recap that advice, you have to violate every impulse you've ever learned as a Westerner. You have to walk directly into traffic and you have to permit dozens of speeding mopeds to miss you by one to two feet each. It's insane. And yet, Vietnamese traffic works. And that's the real point I want to drive here. So, so how does it work? How is it that in this to, to us Westerners, something that's completely insane, how is it working? I think it's because everyone in Vietnam, all these drivers, are playing by the same rules. It might look and feel chaotic, but it's organized and it's agreed upon. Even if it is a little bit chaotic, even if it is chaos, at least it's organized and agreed upon chaos. 
The mopeds, the drivers, they all expect to slow down and to weave. They all expect to get cut off, even when they have green lights. They all expect pedestrians to cross the street in front of them, given, you know, 30 feet or so of heads-up space. There's some universal nonverbal agreement among all the drivers, and I really mean nonverbal. We didn't hear a single Vietnamese person yell from their moped, despite the craziness surrounding them. Traffic speed in Vietnam, in Hanoi, the speed is uniform, and it's relatively cautious. If the speed limit is 30 kilometers per hour, then I would wager 98% of the drivers are following that exact speed limit. Nobody is going way over the speed limit, unlike the USA. And that, to me at least, makes sense. Because what is the number one cause of traffic accidents in the U.S.? It's not actually excessive speed in and of itself. It's speed differential. Uniform speed, if there is no speed differential because everyone's going the same speed, uniform speed cuts down on accidents. The fact that 99% of Hanoi citizens travel on mopeds, these small, quick, flexible, easy-to-break and easy-to-accelerate machines, that certainly helps too. I don't think you could do what Hanoi does if everyone was in full-size cars. I don't necessarily think Vietnam's traffic pattern is optimal, but nevertheless, it proved to me that success is less about perfecting all the details and more about adoption and buy-in. The Vietnamese, they make it work because they've all agreed to make it work. They've all bought into the system and they're cooperating together. Now, on the financial side, I've seen some pretty weird financial habits in my time. And if you're anything like me, you've spent time trying to perfect the details of your financial habits. What's the best budgeting system? What's the optimal portfolio design? What online bank has the best interest rate? Those are great questions to be asking. But many people take those questions too far and they end up stalling their own implementation for fear of imperfect answers. I'll say that again. They end up stalling their implementation of good personal finance principles because they're fearful that their answers aren't quite perfect. They're missing the forest for the trees. They're sacrificing dollars in their quest for extra pennies. And I'm here to tell you, if you're using the third best budgeting system and the sixth best online bank, that is infinitely better than stalling and not using any system at all. It's better than the analysis paralysis of searching and waiting for the perfect financial system. Should we try for good, better, best systems? Of course we should. The compounding long-term benefits of great decisions are, well, they're great. But strong adoption, even of a substandard system, it goes a really long way. And if you're waiting to adopt the best financial habits, stop it. You're stalling. You've got to commit. You've got to go. Trust me, it is easier than walking out in front of traffic. And with that, let's travel across the globe to Ireland. Kelly and I were in Ireland and England here in early September of 2023. And, you know, the main benefit of traveling, at least to me, is observing the way other people and other cultures choose to live. These cultural observations are an amazing way to learn because sometimes you think, wow, that's a great idea. We should be living more like this. But other times you, you count your lucky stars that you were born where you were and when you were. Or you might realize things that you've been missing your whole life. Because after all, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, one example, my brother Zach, uh, he lives in Cork, Ireland, which is part of the reason why we visited. My brother Zach, my wife Kelly and I, we took a ferry about 12 miles out to sea to hike Skellig Michael. 
Among other things, Skellig Michael is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's the location of some famous Luke Skywalker scenes in The Last Jedi. You know, the Force is strong. You might recognize it from Star Wars or even from just pictures you've seen in your life for its famous beehive huts. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Because why is Skellig Michael famous in the first place? Back in the 6th century, the Bishop of Britain told a group of monks, hey guys, if you really love God, go spend the rest of your life on that island and build a monastery. Go preserve our sacred books and writings. Now, as a writer and a reader, I appreciate this. In fact, some historians actually credit Irish monks with saving Western civilization via their dedication to preserving written documents. So, listening to the, the Bishop of Britain, a group of monks, they rode 12 miles out to sea, because remember, there were no motors. This is the 6th century, so they rode out to sea to a steep, barren, half-mile diameter rock, completely exposed to the elements. Then, in the words of Amon, Amon was our island guide, they spent their lives hauling rocks and praying. Now, sounds like fun. Well, regarding that lifestyle, to each their own, if you want to haul rocks, go ahead, haul rocks, I won't stop you. But for me, life has much more to offer. At least modern life does. Because again, according to Eamon, the monks of Skellig Michael, they had a good lifestyle relative to their 6th century peers. Wealthy landowners in England would send their children to Skellig Michael for the monks to teach them how to read. The monks in return would request supplies to survive the island. This exchange, you know, education for supplies, this exchange enabled a better-than-average lifestyle for the monks. But again, they spent their entire adult lives living in, in these slate beehive huts that they would build on an exposed rock in the middle of the sea. On a sunny day, fine. I mean, it could be a reasonable uh, life and kind of comfortable on a sunny day. But what about when the winter storms roll through and you're 12 miles off mainland? Would you trade your current lifestyle, whether it's above or below average for modern times, would you trade that current lifestyle for the life of a monk on Skellig Michael? I know my answer. We have it pretty good. So I'll, I'll count my blessings and take the fish and chips and Guinness that we had in Ireland 10 out of 10 times. But I also noticed a few things in Ireland that piqued my interest in the other direction. So yes, we had a few pints on the trip. Stout is omnipresent in Ireland. Guinness is by far the most popular in Ireland. It's probably the one that you've heard of. Although other regions have a preference for Murphy's or Beamish. And personally, having sampled all three, I'm a Beamish man myself. And, and what do you do when you're sipping your pint in a pub? Do you listen to Bon Jovi and, and watch sports on the TV? Well, not quite. Because most of the Irish pubs that we visited, they had no TVs and they had no piped-in music. Instead, they all featured dozens of local residents wait for it now, they were talking to each other. That's right. The predominant sound of the pub was just the soft white noise of concurrent conversations. And it was so nice. It was so different than the typical American establishments where even a morning coffee spot usually has some sort of loud music that they pipe in. In general, the lifestyle in Ireland feels a full beat calmer, quieter, more serene than life in America. Now, are the reasons purely cultural? Does Irish history promote a quieter lifestyle compared to the go get em America? Uh, do personal economics play a role? Taxes overall are much higher in Ireland, 
So does that tend to push citizens towards relaxation and away from work? Or is America's hyper-consumerism and advertising culture manipulating us to spend, to play, to do more, more, and more? I'm not really sure what the reason is. But my takeaway from this Ireland trip is that I'll continue working hard when it's time to work. But I want to relax more. I want to take life a beat slower. For most Americans, including me, this relaxation is a twofold process. First is creating time to relax. We're all given the same 24-hour day, and we all face the same choices and challenges in how to use that time. So I need to actively choose to create quiet moments in my day or in my week. The second part is working on the ability to truly unwind. That is to say, you know, work is going well. The best interest is going well. And they'll still be going well in an hour or in a day or however long a period I'm choosing to relax. Many of us struggle with that. We've programmed our brains on the notification spectrum, right? Our subconscious knows that emails are slowly dripping into our inboxes or that text messages are coming into our phone. We can't let it go, even when we're quote-unquote relaxing. And that leads to some sort of constant level of stress, right? Notifications, work, the answers that we owe people, it's always on our mind. It's always causing some stress. Ugh, it's a bit too much. So when I'm feeling overwhelmed, and even when I'm not feeling overwhelmed, I'm going to deliberately carve some time into my day, into my week for relaxation. I'm going to think back to that quiet pub in Drizzly Cork, Ireland, where the people chatted over the backdrop of traditional Irish music. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Every week, I send a quick free email to thousands of readers that shares three simple things. One, my new articles and podcasts. Two, the best financial content of the week from all over the internet. And three, a financial chart that explains some important concept in the news that week. It's a great primer to boost your financial know-how. Uh, but Jesse, I don't want another email. Well, this might not be for you, but I do hear you, which is why I make it very short, sweet, and full of only the essentials. While 18% of people who sign up eventually unsubscribe, and 13% of people who are signed up haven't opened it in the past three months, a whopping 66% of subscribers read my email at least once a month. They're enjoying it, and maybe you will too. You can subscribe for free on the homepage at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's a free, no-strings-attached subscription at bestinterest.blog. Chris Hutchins is an avid life hacker, financial optimizer, and host of the award-winning podcast, All the Hacks, where he shares his quest to upgrade his life without having to spend a fortune. Chris was featured in the financial independence documentary, Playing with Fire, great movie, by the way, and he's been covered by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and CNBC. I've heard of those rags. Maybe you have too. Chris, thank you for joining us today, and I thought we could start today's conversation with just the, the, the title of your podcast, All the Hacks and something you spend your time doing, hacking or life hacking. I've heard different connotations to it before. So from your point of view, what's a good definition of life hacking? And maybe what are some of the bad definitions of life hacking that you don't think people should pay attention to? Well, first off, thanks for having me. Second off, you forgot in my accolades uh, sharing the stage with you on uh, in FinCon. So there's that. Totally true. <laughs> big, big question. It's funny because... 
there's a guy named Rich Roll who has a podcast that's larger than both of ours, very, very well known in the health and fitness space. Mm-hmm. And I was meeting him for the first time and I, I saw his video he made where he said, I hate hacks. I hate life hacks. And he has a, he's like notably has a video about this topic. And I thought, man, this could be interesting. I wonder what he thinks. And so I told him about my shtick, if you will. And he was like, oh, I love it. And I was like, what? Here's a guy who said he doesn't like hacks. He doesn't like life hacks and he loves what I'm doing. And he goes, I think there's too many people out there that think hacks are just like a way to not work, not try hard. He's like, it seems like what you're trying to do is find the most efficient way to try hard and get the outcome. You're not trying to not get that hard outcome. You're just trying to find an efficient way to do it. And he's like, and that I love. And so I never really thought about how to define hacking. It was just something I talked about. And now I think it's not about finding the easy way out. It's not about trying to, you know, scam. Scam's the wrong word, but it's like, I'm not trying to cheat the system. I'm not trying to negotiate a discount that puts a company out of business. Like, I'm just trying to say, if you want a thing, there's probably maybe something you want that you didn't even know you want that's better, maybe a better way to get it, maybe another alternative. And my entire life is all about finding those things through what I've now created some principles around, but like a process to make sure you're getting the most optimal outcome. My working title for this book is like, is it, is it better outcomes? Like, is that what it's all about? Like the hacks, who cares if you find an efficient way to get there? What you want is the better outcome. And the way you maximize the most better outcomes is you find the most efficient way to get to each one of them. And then that leaves you the time to find other ones. And that better outcome, by the way, could be, you know, I need to repair my HVAC system or it could be I need to get in shape and be healthy. It could be macro, it could be very micro. So, right, so hacks aren't necessarily shortcuts but they are often time savers or effort savers in some way. Where my mind went to, Chris, was the whole idea of a diet in a pill. And and that's not necessarily a life hack because as Rich Roll would probably say, that's not real. But instead, what you're talking about are, well, if you're going to diet, let's talk about the most efficient ways to do it and the most effective ways to do it. Uh, If you are going to do sit-ups and get a six-pack, here's the right technique, here's the wrong technique. It's more about refining the practices to get the most out of your time and effort as opposed to finding these, you know, kind of ridiculous shortcuts to completely skip around time and effort in the first place. Yes, although every now and then there is one. So I am not a doctor. I'm not going to go down whatever could be the risks of it. But these GLP-1 drugs, Azempic, Manjaro, from the doctors I've talked to, they're close to like miracle weight loss drugs. So sometimes there is a hack. Sometimes there's something that's... Now, the downside is it's super expensive. So the question is like, is there a way to get it cheaper? Right now, I don't have an answer for you. The only way I know to get it covered by insurance is to have diabetes. And I promise you, if your goal is to be healthy, getting diabetes for the purpose of losing weight is not not the path. It's not the way to go. (laughs) Yeah, but but I'll give you an interesting example. And it's probably taking it to a, a gross place right off the start. So sorry, everybody. We have a one of the toilets in our house is lower than the sewer lines. And so Ooh. we have a, a sump pump that basically has to take everything that comes to the toilet and, and send it out. And that sump pump, and maybe it's not a sump pump, but it's a, some kind of pumping thing that yeah, grinds everything up. Yeah. One of the problems is that paper just over time floats to the top, clumps up, and, and needs to be cleaned out. And so I was trying to figure out like what is the cheapest way to get someone to come do this because it's a shitty job, literally. <laughs> so I was like, okay, how often does he need to come? Is there a plumber that's affordable? 
And I started thinking like, is there another way to do this? And I was calling a few people just to brainstorm. Like there has to be a better solution. Like surely this is a thing that lots of people deal with. Many people have basements. And my mom was like, have you ever thought about using RV disintegratable toilet paper? And I was like, no. And so we switched. And now this bathroom, just this bathroom, maybe it's not quite the three ply you get everywhere else in the house. But like this bathroom has dis- like toilet paper designed for an RV that disintegrates. Problem solved. My original solution was like, what is the cheapest way to get someone to come out every three months to clean something in my house, which would have been hundreds of dollars a year, maybe $1,000 a year. The alternative solution took a little bit of outside of the box thinking, took a little bit of talking to other people with perspectives I didn't have. I've never owned an RV. Like it never crossed my mind to even go there. And so that, that's a hack. But right. you know, it, it's a different approach. It might not be the best example, but it's certainly an example of a problem I had to solve. And I found a solution that was so much better that doesn't fall in the scope of what people normally think about when it's like life hacks. And it's just about finding a deal or a discount or a coupon code. Out of the box thinking, even out of the bowl thinking on all the hacks podcast. (laughs) It's a great example. It is. It's unique solutions to problems, solutions that you might not have heard of before. It's one reason why I enjoy the podcast is because, you know, on a a fairly regular basis, you'll have on a guest, Chris, where I'm like, oh, I've never really thought about that. And that that makes a lot of sense to me. But I will say probably your biggest recurring topic, or at least one of them, has to be credit card points. It's something you clearly love. And and when I listen, actually, you might frown at me. I've never spent time to really dig into credit card points. And thus, my credit card is very basic. I think I get 1.5% back on every dollar I spend, full stop. That's it. No bonuses here, no special deals there. So maybe for someone like me, this this can be a two-part question, Chris. So maybe we can start with the first part of just, you can give us some sort of deep dive on your love of credit card points and where it came from and, and kind of how it's helped you over the years. But I'd love you maybe to segue also into what some credit card rookies like me, how we can filter down to find the best credit card for our needs? I got a lot of answers here. So first off, <laughs> if, if I don't remember to come back to what you should specifically do, we have to hit that. Okay. But one of the things I found interesting about credit card content on the internet was that there are some amazing websites about credit card content. I love them. And if you want to go deep down the rabbit hole, Frequent Miler is one of my favorite websites. However, every few days I get an email from them about all the recent blog posts and they're producing probably 50 pieces of content a week on points, miles. And for the average person, it's too much. Yeah. And so what I realized is I love this topic, but I can't create a show about it because then the only people that are going to benefit from it are people that also love this topic. And that's not what I, my goal. My goal was to help as many people as possible improve their lives, save money, be happier, be healthier, be wealthier, and all of that. And so I realized if I want to talk about travel points and miles, it can't just be a show about that which is actually good because I don't want to spend my whole life talking about travel points and miles. When I meet someone and they're like, oh, I could talk about this for days. I'm like, I don't want to. I want to hit the highlights because I think it's really interesting and I'll tell you why. But I'm also interested in improving my health. I'm also interested in building a business. I'm also interested in saving money and investing for the long run and earning the most interest and you know returns I can. And so the reason why I keep coming back to it though is that one of the biggest we'll call it variable costs in people's lives. There is house hacking. I've done an episode on it. It'll help you reduce probably your biggest expense. 
and, and we can go systematically through someone's budget and, and optimize for saving money. And I've done this as a practice for myself, helping other people. I think at the end of the day, there's this whole movement to save money, financial independence, save as much as possible. The problem is you're, it's a lot of deprivation. And so I think if you say, let's house hack so that I can lower my cost, great. But if you're trying to save money, you often end up cutting out the things that bring you above the line. If here's a baseline where you just live and work and that's it, you save all this money by reducing your costs. I want to go above. And travel was one of these things that is pretty expensive. To go on a trip on an airplane, stay at hotels, do activities with a couple people or a family of four, like it could be thousands of dollars. Oh, definitely. And so I, th- I think for people trying to save money, it gets cut a lot and it's one of their biggest expenses. And travel hacking is a way to bring down the cost of that travel so much that it makes it much more accessible. Whether you're trying to bring a $50,000 trip down to $5,000 or you're trying to bring a $5,000 trip to $100, like for anyone across any amount of money, I think travel hacking can have a huge impact. And I also say that travel is part of the reason I've become such a good optimizer. Some of the reasons that I've found interesting out-of-the-box solutions to millions of things in my lives is that when you go visit other places, you realize people do things differently. And the more you train your brain and your mind and your subconscious to just think, wow, the way I've always done this isn't the only way. The way my parents told me I should do something doesn't necessarily have to be right. You know, there's this old adage of like the only way to build wealth is through real estate. And lots of people's Mm. parents have told them that. Right. I don't think it's true. I think it is a way. And I think for a lot of people in a lot of circumstances, it's not the best way. I think people have to force themselves to think about life from millions of perspectives to find the hacks. And so that's why I love travel. And I love travel hacking because I'd much rather spend $500 than $10,000 on a trip. And and so travel hacking for the uninitiated, what you're saying, Chris, is that it, it almost always involves using some sort of credit card points, some sort of maybe airline miles through a credit card to reduce the price of your flights, reduce the price of your hotels, maybe reduce the price of things I'm, I'm not thinking of? I mean, is that kind of the, the whole idea of travel hacking and how you got into? Yeah, at its highest level, I think when you're spending money and you have the option to use a credit card and not pay fees, right? There are some merchants that'll say, oh, if you want to pay for with your bank account or a debit card, it's free. If you want to pay with a credit card, you have to pay 3%. A lot of people's rent does this mm-hmm. uh, unless you have the built card, which if anyone doesn't and you pay rent, allthehacks.com slash built is my personal link. You get <laughs> earn points on rent. It's a great card. But aside from that, there are, when you spend money, merchants are paying a percentage for processing that credit card. And some credit cards will give you none of it back. And some credit cards will give you more of it back. So if the merchant's going to pay the fee when you use a credit card, you might as well use the best card possible. Now, you could decide that you don't want to, you want to pay cash and the merchant won't pay the fee and they'll probably earn a little bit of extra. That's up to you. But if you're spending money on a credit card, you can earn something back and you just have to decide how you want to use it. And the reason travel hacking is so compelling is that if done right, which takes some work, you can make the average point you earn worth anywhere on the low end from two to maybe 10 cents on the high end. So if you had a card that gives you two points back per dollar, just flat, two points back, and you can make it worth two to 10 cents, you're effectively getting somewhere between 4 and 20% cash back. There isn't a cashback card that does that. So the reason I love travel hacking is for that purpose. 
if you decide I don't travel enough, I don't want to put in the time and energy into, you know, making sure that I'm, you know, using these rewards optimally, which isn't that hard, but it's definitely more work than just taking the cash back, then fine. There are cards that will give you 2% flat cash back. So one and a half, like at a minimum, switch to a card that'll give you 2% cash back. City Double Cash will is, is kind of the most notorious. And I have no complaints about the City Double Cash other than they charge you a 3% foreign transaction fee if you're traveling. So it's not a great international card, but 2% cash back on everything domestically. Highly recommend over 1.5% on everything. Got it. 2% is table stakes. Well, let's dive deeper into that topic, Chris. What are some other questions I should be asking myself to, to filter down to the best card for my needs? Yeah, so it's interesting because... I actually spent a ton of time trying to figure this out. And, and on the point side, not the cashback side, I built this spreadsheet. And I put 30 or so cards in it that I thought were the most common cards. You could put in your exact spending. I spend this much a year in these categories. And it doesn't have to be perfect, by the way. Mm-hmm. And you could go in and check. I wish that I could probably like layer some AI. I haven't done that. You go check a bunch of cards and say, what am I going to effectively earn with this combo? And what I did was I said, okay, for the average spending pattern, which like Bureau of Labor Statistics, Consumer Expenditure Survey, Mm -hmm. average six-figure household, how do they spend money? And the answer was there was a two-card combo that was the best. However, as you added more and more cards, like I'm the crazy person with, you know, 12, 15 credit cards, past two, you really start to get diminishing returns unless you have some really big use cases, right? If you spend thousands of dollars a year on flights or, or tens of thousands of dollars a year, the Amex Platinum earns five points per dollar on flights. It's probably a good one to add to your arsenal. If you don't spend that much money on flights a year, the annual fee is, you know, there's a bunch of coupon, like kind of rebates and credits that kind of counter the annual fee, but it might not be worth it. But for the average person, it was two cards. And it was basically a catch-all card, which in the cashback world would be a 2% cashback card. And in the points world would be a two points per dollar card. Hmm. For me, that card's the Capital One Venture or Venture X. It's my like, I literally am it's sitting on my desk right here. We're not recording video for you all listening, but it's it's like on my desk. It's the card. It's one of two cards I carry in my wallet. As someone with a lot of cards, I carry a wallet that snaps to the back of my iPhone, has a driver's license and two credit cards. The Venture X is like my staple because it's 2X everything. Then you want to optimize for a card that maximizes your spending wherever you spend the most money. For the average household, that I found that card was the Amex Gold because it's four points per dollar on dining and four points per dollar on groceries. Got it. That one-two combo was pretty simple. However, I will throw a caveat in here that is in order to get the maximum value out of both of those cards, you're going to need to play some of the travel hacking game. If you want to reserve the right to not have to play some of the travel hacking game, there are other combos for cashback, or I think Chase has a, a great middle-of-the-road option, which is you could add, and, and I think if the one-two on Chase is one of the Chase Sapphire cards, the Sapphire Reserve or the Sapphire Preferred, and the Freedom Unlimited. Now, keep in mind, the Freedom Unlimited is only going to earn 1.5% on everything, not two. But Chase gives you this ability to use the points in their travel portal And if you have a Sapphire card, whether it's reserve or preferred, you get a little extra value. They're either worth 1.25 or 1.5 cents. So like, I think it's a compelling alternative to cash back to match those two cards. You earn all your points in one platform. So you're not trying to say, oh, I've got some Amex points here. I've got some Capital One points here. That could be tough. 
An alternative, though, is also the venture. And I know this is going deep, but like the, the venture and the saver or saver one card on Capital One is another good combo because the saver card has high return on dining and groceries as well. If you want to stay all within the Capital One ecosystem, and honestly, you could also go City Double Cash and City Premier. Like within each card ecosystem, there's kind of two cards that make for a great combo. Got it. And I think until you get deep into this, having to say, well, I've got I've got 20,000 chase points and 40,000 this point, it's hard if they're all in different places. Yeah. So like, yeah. the only one I will say doesn't work on its own well is Amex because Amex just doesn't have a good everything else card. Interesting. Um, they have a okay. business card that'll give you one and a half points if you own a business and it's capped at $50,000 a year. Like it just, there's a lot going on there. So when you want to play two cards across different programs, I think the Amex Gold is awesome. It's the other card that I keep in my wallet. <laughs> but yeah, you could go down a deep, dark rabbit hole. However, I say all of this and there's like two interesting things to point out. One, I should have said earlier. If you're not paying off your credit cards in full and you have a balance and you don't have the cash to do it, this is not your game. Credit card interest, especially right now with high interest rates, is so high that no amount of points and anything is worth carrying a balance. So step one, pay off your cards. The other interesting thing is, let's pretend, which is not even possible, but let's pretend that you could open up a bunch of credit cards that somehow managed to make all the categories you spend money on, 4X, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is four points per dollar, which is, is actually really hard. And no matter how many cards I layer into my model, which look, if anyone's interested, you can go to allthehacks.com slash card value. I have it there. You could pay as little as a dollar and, and get access to this spreadsheet that I spent a bunch of time on. And you can play for yourself. No matter how many cards I add, I cannot get the points per dollar above three 3X. Because there's just so many expenses that don't have multipliers. But let's just say you could. And you went and spent, let's say, $5,000. Okay. And, and that $5,000 could earn 4x points. You'd earn 20,000 points. Which isn't great. You mm -hmm. know, I'd say if you can get two cents of value, that's like $400. But the interesting thing is, if you were to open up the Capital One Venture X card from scratch you would earn 75,000 miles for spending $4,000. Plus, you'd get 2x points on the $4,000. So you get another 8,000 points. So you're sitting at 83,000 points on $4,000. If you could somehow perfectly find a mixture of cards that I don't think exists to earn four points per dollar and spend $5,000, you'd have 20,000. Got it. So the number of points you can earn in that example, 83,000 points on top of spending $4,000, that's 20.75 points per dollar. Which, if there were two cents, is 41.5% cash back. Mm -hmm. Like, astronomical. So the way many people play this game is they focus on these giant welcome bonuses that cards are offering as the way to accumulate points. And, and especially earlier in your career, earlier in your life, when you're not spending lots of money, it's just... Picking the perfect card is is not as impactful as jumping on a really big welcome bonus when it comes out. Hmm. That's like the, the reality is we spend all this time building models, which I did on like, what's the best few cards? But even if you spend $100,000 perfectly, you're going to get 265,000 points. If you open the right two credit cards, you'll get the same number of points. Same number of points. Interesting. And, and 
we don't have time to go into the crazy nuance of all of this, but I'll send you a link to a Twitter post, which a guy and his wife went through this process to open up. I believe it was like 25 cards, he and his wife, over the course of 18 months, mm-hmm. which sounds insane to most people listening. It sounds insane to me, yeah. even though I'm <laughs> in this space. And the crazy thing was his wife started with a 670 credit score. They opened 23 or 24 cards. So she probably opened at least a dozen and ended with a 798. He started with a 794 and ended with an 805. So like the impact on credit from doing this was positive, which is probably counter to what most people would assume. And I think he earned in this entire process, it was over a million points for sure. I just can't remember the exact number, whether it was one or two or three. And so if you want to accumulate points as fast as possible, that's the way to do it. I try to keep on all the hacks.com slash cards a list of all the cards and their bonuses. And for me, somewhere between 75 and 100,000 points is like the threshold for a great offer. The closer it gets to 100, that's when I'm like, ooh, this is great. And if it's over that, even better. And then the other rule is I really try to accumulate points with places that make them flexible. So if you accumulate chase Mm -hmm, points, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. chase points can transfer to United, chase points can transfer to Hyatt, they can transfer to Air Canada, they can transfer to British Airways, they can transfer to Air France. And so the way you get the most value out of these programs is you transfer your points to the airline program or hotel group and book directly with them. And that's where we could go too far down a rabbit hole and and maybe we'll have to come back and talk about it or I've probably done five or 10 episodes on this and, and you can go search for them. But I prefer that. So yes, you could go get probably 150,000 Hilton points, but you're only going to be able to use them at Hilton. I would much rather, by the way, I would much rather have 75,000 Chase Capital One points or Amex mm. points than 150,000 Hilton points. Because those are flexible. Yeah. And unfortunately, the value of hotel points um, outside of Hyatt, IHG, Marriott, Choice Hotels, Hilton, they're all like somewhere around half a cent, 0.6 cents, 0.7 cents. So it's just a lot less value. Whereas the value of most frequent flyer miles and Hyatt is probably closer to one to one and a half cents. So I just want the flexibility because sometimes my wife and I were planning a trip with our kids last year, right around this time, to go to London and Paris. And the absolute best deal, and just an example of how valuable your points could be. You know, we have enough points. We're going to go in business class. And the flights in business class were somewhere around the, I think it was like six or $7,000. Mm-hmm. The best deal to get to London or Paris. And we were like, we didn't care which city we started in and we had some flexibility. Well, the best deal to get to Paris was on Air France. And we booked with Air France. We flew direct flights, SFO to Air France. I think it was 65,000 points each hmm. way. Hmm. Uh, but we, we booked one. The best way back was on United. And United wanted 80,000 points. But if I booked it on Turkish Air on the exact same United flight, if I booked it through Turkish Air's program, it was 40,000 points. Wow. Turkish Air is a transfer partner of Capital One, put my Capital One points there. So for 105,000 points per person, which I know for some people getting started seems crazy. And by the way, you don't need to fly business class. You could do it in economy for probably 40,000 points. Mm -hmm. But I've played this game long enough and that's what I'm doing now. So for 105,000 points, we got a $6,000 flight. Now, what what does that actually mean? Well, $6,000, 100,000 points, we were getting about six cents a point. Would I have paid for that business class flight with cash if I had no points? Maybe if it was like two grand. Yeah. Probably not if it was six grand. So maybe you could argue it's only worth two cents a point, not six. 
But there's no way you could argue that I would have been better off with cash back. And we got to go to London. I yeah. guarantee you, if we didn't have the points, even though I think the flight is a fair price at two or three grand, we weren't going to spend $15,000 to go to London. One of the big takeaways I'm, I'm getting here, Chris, is you can get a lot out of the travel hacking credit card point game, but it's certainly a function of what you're willing to put in. Meaning yes. like, all right, I, you know, if, if I want to stay on the simple side of things, it sounds like I should definitely be getting a card that gets me at least 2% back on everything. And I should probably look at my and Kelly's budget, look at our biggest expenditure. It probably is groceries and dining out outside of housing and, and car costs, but find a, a secondary card that gives me extra points for those things that I'm spending the most on. If they come with welcome bonuses, even better. But it sounds like if you really want to go deep and open 10 plus cards and get tons of welcome bonuses and pay off your cards every month, which is probably the most important thing that we're talking about today. You know, it's this little caveat, but you don't want to run credit card debt. But if you're willing to keep track of everything and go deep, you can fly to France for free business class. Yeah. And by the way, like, we didn't always fly business class. And so if you could fly to France in economy, you know, here's a great example. I think if you timed it right and got the best deal, you could probably do a, a flight to France with those 83,000 points from Capital One from just spending $4,000. I think 83,000 points, it, it'd be close. But I think there's a world where you could, you could absolutely get to France in economy. You could probably get round trip for that if you timed it right and you, you, know, you got the right deals and prices and everything, which means open one card spend $4,000 and go to Europe for free. The other thing interesting, cashback cards typically have lower bonuses, so uh, hmm. you just don't get a lot of that. But look, if you don't want to play the game, no judging, right? But like the Saver One card is 3% cashback on dining, entertainment, grocery stores, and I think streaming. If, if you're spending all your money there, at least consider getting a cashback yeah. card that's going to pay you back for it. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think there's... Um, there's two tiers of the saver one, and I think one of them goes up to four. I think the saver, not the saver one, the saver is 4% on dining and 3% on groceries, but I believe it has an annual fee. So you just got to ask yourself, do I spend enough on dining that getting an extra 1% cash back is worth $95 a year? If it's not, then definitely don't do it. Right, right. A little math is involved. That's okay. Yeah. This is this is personal finance. We get it. I like it. Well, let's change gears a little bit. It's it's. I mean, I, I really enjoy, I've now heard you talk go deep on credit card points, maybe three or four times on your podcast on animal spirits now here today. So I'm, you're starting to push me over the edge. I'm going to look into it myself, but we can focus on some other things because you've had, as of this recording, 134 podcast episodes, Chris, many of them involving some sort of real expert guest. You've had some amazing guests on. And I'm curious, which single episode, which single guest sticks out in your mind and, and why was that particular episode so impactful for you? This is an easy one. Like Sometimes I get these questions where it's like, what is your all-time favorite hack? And I'm like, oh, this is really hard. <laughs> this question, I mean, it's not easy, right? I have a lot of episodes that I go back and I've even re-listened to. But there is one particular episode that I think had a very abrupt high impact, right? So if you listen to an episode that talks about healthy lifestyle, Right, I've done some episodes with doctors, with athletes, and it's kind of changed. Okay, I'm going to change this thing over time. I'll see this benefit. I did an episode with Arthur Brooks on happiness. Cool. And like, it yeah. was an incredible episode, but it's not going to change everything in a moment. I did an episode with a guy named Bill Perkins. It was episode 91, allthehacks.com slash 91. And he wrote a book called Die With Zero. 
And the case he makes is that we should be focused on net fulfillment, not net worth. I had been the exact opposite. I had been someone who had a spreadsheet, who tracked my net worth over time, watched exactly how much it went up, was every time if my wife were talking about what our financial goals were, it was the next milestone of our net worth. And mm -hmm. that was our priority. And I, I had this conversation and I left and I was like, what are we doing? Why does that number matter? Why do I want it to go up? Do I just want to have a pile of money when I die? Like Scrooge McDuck? Like what is yeah. going on? And his message isn't spend all your money. It, it technically is actually. I take it back. His message is die with zero. And when you right. die, you should have no money. It's not go blow all your money in your 30s. He makes a couple small cases like instead of leaving all of your money to your kids, maybe give it to your kids earlier. Help them buy a house. Help them start a company. Give them the money when, by the way, you can watch the impact it has on their lives. You want to give money to charity? Great. Give it to it before you die. You'll see the impact it has on that charity. That charity will have that impact sooner. But the big thing was at each stage of life, there are things that can only really happen at that stage. And depriving yourself of those things so that you can save more and bolster your net worth in the long run might not actually be the best outcome. So if you've always wanted to take a backpacking trip solo or with your spouse, waiting until you have kids is almost a certainty that you will either not take that trip or it will cost you 50 times more because you're going to wait till your kids have gone off to college and you're going to take the trip where I promise you, you're not going to want to stay in a $3 a night hostel in India. Like yeah. it's just, you're going to have different <laughs> expectations. So that's something where if you have, maybe, and by the way, travel when you're willing to go slow and you're willing to backpack and stay in $1 hostels is pretty cheap. So if you're in your 20s or early 30s and you don't have a family yet and you can afford to take a few months off and do that, it will be less expensive now and that experience is something you won't be able to have later. And so, yeah, it's important to save, but that experience isn't available to you later in life or, or it'll be more expensive or different. And, and similarly, I think a lot of people think, well, once I save all this money, I can retire. And once I retire, I can do all this stuff. And I'm starting to see my parents who are still, you know, very cognitively there. But from a health standpoint, when you're in your 70s, you just can't do the same things you could in your 60s, 50s, 40s, mm -hmm. 30s. I'm even seeing like, I can't do all the same things I used to do in my 20s. And I'm not even 40 yet. And so when I think about that, it's like, well, yeah, maybe you want to hike Machu Picchu, but you can't wait too long or you literally probably can't do it. And so my wife and I now, we don't have a net worth goal. We kind of look at the projections of how much we're spending and we have a goal that we don't run out of money early. Like that's important. And so that might take a certain net worth, but the goal isn't just arbitrarily to grow the pile of money we have. It just seems yeah. like it no longer seems like a goal and it's given me so much clarity and it's absolutely incredible to look at the emails I've gotten from listeners who are like, I listened to that episode and it, it literally changed my perspective on so many things. And That's I'd say awesome. almost every week I get another listener that writes in and says, it totally changed my perspective. Cool. So, and that was episode 91, episode right? Episode 91 with Bill Perkins. Episode 91. And listeners, if you want to, I think, yeah, Die With Zero is on my recommendations page, bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Really cool book. We'll make sure that people can tune into episode 91 to hear Bill Perkins on all the hacks. Chris, and maybe I'll reach out to Bill and see if he wants to come on the Best Interest podcast. 
I would recommend that. Uh, I it took me a long time to get him to reply, so I don't have a lot of time. Uh, persistence, persistence fade off. Well, it's funny. There's this phrase I've heard before: time, talent, and treasure. At various points in life, we have varying amounts of those three things. And as we get older, oftentimes our treasure grows, which is great. But usually our time decreases. Life just gets so busy. And our talent, at least when it comes to, say, like physical talent to go do that hike that you were talking about, that goes out the window. And so it is very interesting. It sounds like Bill's almost adding a a fourth dimension into that, which is, or at least a new way to measure treasure. Because to his point, there is no good reason to die on top of a giant pile of gold, as you said, like Scrooge McDuck. Like, what's the point? What's the point? You Use will get it while more you're out of that treasure seeing it have an impact Correct. than just knowing Correct. it will be passed on. Exactly. And even, even if your plans are to pass it on to your kids and to leave a bunch of charity, those are great things. But you can start to enact at least some of those great things while you're still alive. And, and that way you get to put a smile on your face too. I like it a lot. By the way, it might be, yeah. and this, this only happens when you cross the millions and millions of dollars mark, but I hope that lots of people listening to this show save a lot, do amazing things, and have millions of dollars. It might actually be more tax efficient to give that money to your kids over time than wait and do it at the end of your life. So there's actually a financial, not just an emotional benefit, but there might even be a financial benefit to doing it sooner. Totally, totally. Put together a smart gifting strategy with the CFP. That's a thing. Oh, you made me think of something there, Chris. What was it? Oh, I know what it was. Yeah, studies show that uh, listeners of the Best Interest Podcast and All the Hacks do have far above average net worths. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. I would love to see these studies. I should go, (laughs) I should promote them more heavily. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a webpage. You can check it out at bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. Chris, many of my listeners, they fall into that 25 to 40 year old uh, range. And, And that means that many of them have young kids, kind of like you. So I was wondering, as a relatively new parent, are there any parent-specific hacks that you love? They could be financial or maybe they're not. Wow. Okay. So there's just so much to unwrap in parenting. In fact, (laughs) my wife and I were talking about this. We had so much we wanted to talk about parenting that we didn't want to overwhelm the non-parents. And so (laughs) we're going to do a mini series on it next year where we do like off, not not the main Wednesday episode, but something. That's cool. Well, Uh, I'm going to interrupt you real what what is your parental situation in case the listeners don't oh, know? Oh yeah, sorry. We have two kids, a three year old and a fifteen month old. And so I would say I've got all kinds of stuff. And, you know, we we were trying to figure out how do you make a full time job work when you are having child. And you know, for people that that have the luxury of spending money, I'll just give this as an example of I guess a hack. There are things called night nannies, and and common thing for some people that are working who need to be on their game. Maybe your company doesn't give you as much parental leave. Some people hire a night nanny who will come in and help take care of the baby in the middle of the night. That's the thing you could do. And it's quite expensive. And when we looked at it, it was like astronaut, like it was just very, very expensive, especially Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. And then I started asking around and people were like, oh yeah, in New York, everyone has a baby nurse. No one has a night nanny. And I was like, oh, what's a baby nurse? So I, I was going down this rabbit hole and hopefully this can apply to things way beyond parenting. But I just started asking around. In New York, everyone hires 
not everyone, many people who have enough money to hire someone who comes in, lives in the house with the family for a few months, maybe one, 30 days, one, two months when the baby's young and helps during the day and at nights doing all of these things. And it ends up costing about the same or less than having someone come to your house for like seven hours at night. And they're hmm. working like 16 hour days and, and this is what they want to do. And then they take a big break after. So it's like an intense two months, maybe a couple weeks off. And I was like, wow, had I not asked, why are all my friends in the Bay Area, because this isn't a common thing, spending more money than they need to? And I just kept asking this. And then a friend of mine who's Korean was like, I don't know why these people in New York spend so much money on this service. In Korean culture, we have a different thing that's just like that, except not only does the person take care of the kids, but they also make really hearty meals to help mom recover. And their goal is really helping the mom recover during this kind of confinement period, which is popular in Chinese and Korean culture and a few other Asian uh, cultures where someone's really there to take care of mom. But in order to get, let mom recover, they have to also take care of the baby. And so that ended up being about half the cost. And uh, now downside was the person that stayed with us didn't speak much English. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, the baby didn't speak English either. And it's true. You know, we've traveled enough. <laughs> you know, here's another benefit of travel. We've traveled enough that we we're pretty good at communicating without needing to speak fluently. And mm -hmm. so for a few weeks after both of our daughters were born, we had this amazing woman, uh, Mrs. Park, come stay with us and help with a lot of things that actually allowed me to go back to work a little earlier, which then allowed me to take parental leave later after my wife went back to work. So we both had a bit of time over the first year to be off, but it wasn't all at once. And she took care of all the cooking. It, it was incredible. The company that provides this service is called Sanhu USA. S-A-N-H-O-O-U-S-A.com. Hmm. I think the website's probably all in Korean. But that was one hack was just like, Night Nanny was just too expensive. But you know we were willing to spend something. Gosh, where else do I go down this path? We buy almost all of our kids' stuff on Facebook Marketplace. Ooh, um, so I like it. whether it's a stroller or anything, it's like what I've learned now as a parent three years in is like when you're done with kids' stuff, you are just like, I don't, I just want it gone. And like mm -hmm. before having kids, I'd be like, ooh, what is the most optimal way to sell this thing? And I remember, um, you know, we were trying to sell something. And it would be like, well, how much can I get? Should I go to eBay? Should I go to Mercari? Should, what, what price should it be? And then now I'm like, who can pick it up today? Like, yeah, yeah, get and, it out of here. And I think parents, <laughs> you know, this might not be all parents, but there are many parents that are just like, they value just getting rid of stuff and simple, seamless, quick. And so we both take and receive with that model. So we've been getting a ton of stuff secondhand and we've been giving a ton of stuff either away, dropping mm -hmm. it off at Goodwill selling it for a low enough price that it's just quick to move. And so I think there's just so many people with kids that want to get rid of stuff that I highly recommend that. I got one silly hack that's if you're trying to get your kid into preschool. And and, and I don't mean get in like special talents, just preschools are full and sometimes yeah, you can't get are. your child in. And we we did not go down the preschool path. But the hack I learned was a lot of times preschools are like, well, we don't have any room five days a week. We do have two days a week. And I have a couple friends that have since used this. And they say, great, we'll take the two days. Once you're in two days, you get the priority for the other three days. Oh. And like within a month, 
they got in, but they took the spot that had they been, had someone been waiting for a just, hey, let me know when five days are available, they never would have gotten the spot. So I'd say if you need to get your kid in five days, at a minimum, enroll them in one day. Don't just wait for five. And, and pretty quickly, someone drops out and they, they pass that along. So I've had a couple friends use that. We have an au pair. So if you have an extra room in your house and you are interested in the kind of cultural exchange that comes with someone from another country living in your house, it, it's a really interesting alternative to a hmm. nanny or daycare or preschool or anything like that. Is, it, is the traditional arrangement of an au pair, Chris, that they get free lodging, but in exchange, they provide some free childcare? It's that and a weekly stipend. So you pay a weekly stipend. You still pay them something. Um, okay. Okay. So that they have money to go out. And, you know, we provide our, you know, she can use our car to go do things. And if we go on a trip, she'll come with us, which is a perk for her, but it's also a perk for us. We were talking about how I'm going to this conference in Hawaii. We've made a family trip out of it. We're going for a nice. week. She's going to have a few days to explore Hawaii and she's going to be with us. But also, we're going to have a few days that, you know, if my wife and I want to go out to dinner, we can go do that you know, while our kids are there without having to go find childcare in Hawaii, which is very possible, right? If you don't have an au pair, call the concierge of a hotel you're staying at and be like, who do you recommend for childcare? Use one of the care.com urban sitters sites. Like there are lots of options that many people I know have used, but this is even easier because it's the person our kids are familiar with and, and it's just so simple. So it doesn't work if you don't like people living in your house. It doesn't work if you walk around your house naked all the time. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, if neither of those things are true and you have an extra room, it's been fantastic. And our daughter now speaks a little bit of Spanish, speaks a little bit of Italian. And so we we get the cultural exchange of having someone from another country in our house, which is actually really fun because we're not traveling as much because travel with children is a lot. And yeah. so we still get a little bit of the cultural exchange that you would get from travel without having to leave our home. That's awesome. What a great deal. What a great Those deal. are a few. I think I'll have some more next year. If there's a specific topic you want to go into, I'm happy to, but... No, that's that that's cool, Chris. And I think if and when uh, you and your wife sit down and do this little parental miniseries, let me know and, and I'll include it in the Best Interest newsletter so that way listeners to this episode and people who subscribe to the newsletter will get that update and they can tune in to all the hacks. And uh, speaking of, let's, let's, segue, let's segue to the little outro here. Chris, I'm sure people are going to want to tune in. Maybe they'll tune into episode 91. We'll throw that link in the show notes. Maybe they'll want to go check out your spreadsheet that you mentioned before. We'll throw that in the show notes. But just, again, remind people, how can they find you? How can people connect with you and All The Hacks? Everything is at allthehacks.com. You can go there. If you're listening to this podcast, you're in a podcast player. You can just search All The Hacks. If you don't see the an episode that's exciting this week, go look at last week. We I try to do a really deep dive in lots of different topics from insurance to health to finance and banking and investing and every, everything and in between. So I'm sure there is something there that will help you upgrade your life, your money, your travel, hopefully all while spending less and saving more. Very cool. Chris Hutchins of All The Hacks, thank you for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast.
The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. 